Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hello, I'm Peter Tufano, and you're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times from the University of Oxford's Said Business School. This podcast is specially curated from a new series of live online events in which we've been debating the challenges reshaping business and society during the COVID-19 outbreak. We've called on our global community of academics, leaders, and thinkers to help us navigate this brave new world, to deepen our understanding of the immediate crisis, and to find a path to the opportunities of the future. In this episode, faculty from the school's organizational behavior group, Professor Mariah Beshroff and Professor Aero Vara, offer their insights into leadership practices for achieving impact in the context of this pandemic. Mariah and Aero will discuss how to make sense of the current crisis and its implications involving scenarios and alternative futures, as well as leadership strategies for effectively navigating the multiple economic and social demands the crisis brings to the fore. These include creating guardrails to hold your organization to its most pressing priorities and values during this challenging time, making dynamic decisions to adapt to rapidly changing circumstances, and using stories and narratives to develop a sense of the possible and to mobilize action. Arrow Vara is up first. In his research, Arrow has looked at sense-making and sense-giving in crises, disasters, and accidents, including the Stockwell shooting in London and the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean. Arrow begins by looking at sense-giving, how leaders influence the sense-making of others. How can this lens help us figure out what's going on when organizations face change? Traditionally, uh, the sense-making perspective has been focusing on the cognitive aspects in terms of trying to understand how people develop explanations of things and how they you know, develop theories of what's going on and their implications. But more recently, we've also understood that it's also very much linked with emotions. So with cognition, you have rationality, but also emotions. And this is important because it's oftentimes emotions that trigger sense-making, but also the process of sense-making involves emotional engagement. And then the discursive aspects, that those are the you know, ones that I'd be mostly interested as a, as a scholar, and I guess also as a practitioner. This is because of collective social sense-making really happens uh, in and through language and communication. There's no other way of doing this, basically. So thus is both interesting and important to pay attention to the kinds of discourses and, and rhetoric, vocabularies, and especially the narratives that we are using and developing when we are making sense of things. Usually a good outcome of sense-making is a more or less shared narrative of the past, present, and the future. But of course, uh, getting there is not easy. And then there are the political aspects of sense-making, which are also very real in terms of people having different perspectives, cognitive frames, identities, and interests at play. And this makes it all more complicated than is usually the case. I've tried to pin down a couple of characteristics of the current crisis. And, and to be honest, uh, it's probably so that when we are in the middle of this crisis, we really don't yet see all the similarities and differences when we compare this crisis to the ones that have happened before. 
But this is a very particular crisis and it's very real for us. And thus it's uh, important to focus attention on some of, some of the features of the sense-making that's, that's happening uh, within and outside organizations. The one thing that I, I guess is the starting point or triggers sense-making is this constant uncertainty and anxiety about the future that people are experiencing. And this is why people really try to figure out what's going on. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of ambiguity around you know, the virus itself and its implications. And I'm not going to here focus too much on the medical side, even though that's, that's just uh, hugely important and the consequences have been horrible. But also in terms of the you know, causes and consequences in terms of what's going to happen in particular companies or organizations are very real and important. Now, unfortunately, uh, the implications are not even. So it's not easy to make sense of those because uh, you know, some organizations or companies, you know, companies are facing bankruptcy, really, as we speak, while others are finding new opportunities to operate. And, and within the same organization, you know, some people are really badly off, while others may be, you know, seeing new uh, opportunities and challenges. And this means uh, that it's really right now that we have these uh, several alternative futures at play. You know, we, we really don't know what's going to happen. We, we don't know what the end point is, and it looks different from from the perspective of different individuals and groups of people. And this also links with the politicization of it in terms of people having uh, different points of view and different interests in play. And all that I'm trying to say here really amounts to the fact that uh, unfortunately, it's really difficult to construct this one shared narrative that we would usually like to see emerging from sense-making, which would help to direct uh, attention and help in, in concerted efforts to get by. I've tried to pick up a few uh, pointers though that we can get from uh, previous studies and practical experiences. I'm sure that there are many others, but I, I wanted to pick a few that I think resonate with what we are seeing around us. One is that, and now I'm really focusing on leaders, right? And not only the top leaders, but leaders uh, at different levels in, in an organization. So what usually helps is an analytical orientation. There's a need to explain. But at the same time, if that's calm, I think the other part is compassion. It's really important to show empathy in, in the sense of understanding that people are going through truly mixed emotions oftentimes. And probably from a leader's perspective, it's also useful to show some, some of one's own emotions to make it more... Uh, real, narrating the future. That's my favorite point, and I really want to hammer home this one point. I think that there's too little of this happening at this point. I think people are very cautious in terms of talking about the future, or when we're talking about the future, it's oftentimes pointing to the huge risks and unfortunate implications. People would, however, also need hope, and they would need some realistic alternative future scenarios, at least, if not a fully developed shared narrative about a company's or an organization's strategy. So scenarios and storytelling are very useful uh, vehicles for this. And you know what? I think people are also um, very much aware that, you know, that these narratives may also develop over time as we are getting further with the crisis and hopefully out of the crisis. And all this, you know, uh, whilst, whilst we might uh, traditionally think that it's the job of these top people uh, you know, to provide meaning. It's also, you know, it's really important to provide spaces for others to do this sense-making and orchestrate this collective sense-making. And I think this is the essence of distributed leadership as I see that. 
what to avoid then? Well, the opposite, I guess. People are expecting presence, which is not easy, of course, when we are doing remote work and all the rest of it. Uh, but nevertheless, I think that's important. Uh, it's not a good idea in today's organizations to be secretive and hide facts. Neither is it, is it a really good idea to overreact in, in the sense of like going into the panic mode that easily uh, spreads. Now, of course, all this is even more easily said than done. And also, I in particular want to say that one should avoid going too deep into this blame game or scapegoating, which probably is an inevitable part of what's going on, but still is not at all helpful. You know, with uh, crisis, we all also have opportunities for change. In the best of cases, crises are moments when organizations are able to clarify the purpose and identity of the organization. And I think that retrospectively, we often see that moments of crisis have helped organizations to develop. You know, when there's change, there's also a possibility to do things better. And we are talking so much about these grand challenges and wicked problems of today's society. I think change, which is in a sense forced upon us in many organizations, also provides this opportunity to think anew and perhaps start doing things uh, in a better way. You know, oftentimes strategy work in particular in organizations, especially strategic planning has become perhaps too ceremonial or even ritualistic, and people are not so excited about that. But now this is different. This situation is different. Firstly, I think everyone understands that there's a need for strategic thinking and there's a need for strategic action. So, so people are expecting this to happen. And I think in terms of engagement and participation, people are much more willing to do this than in other circumstances. So this also provides an opportunity to do new kind of strategy work especially those organizations which are really in a position where they need to rethink what they are all about, that is the purpose and identity of the organization, would benefit from open strategy. Open strategy, well, sounds like a fancy principle, but the way I understand that is that it's really uh, useful to involve as many stakeholders as possible uh, in these kinds of situations to figure out uh, the key points or I provide new ideas for, for a company's or an organization's strategy. And, um, and one might think that this is really difficult because, you know, all this, you know, what's happening impedes us from having these strategy away days or, you know, meeting face to face. But you know what, I, I think that, you know, people are ready to work also virtually. And actually there are a lot of uh, platforms and solutions and technologies and experts who can help to harness, really, you know, make use of the technology that's available to, to allow a number of stakeholders to be somehow linked with the, what we can would otherwise call a strategic planning uh, process. And, and that would be also helpful, not only like in strategy formation, but also in terms of strategy implementation. And I guess in the best of cases, this could, you know, create also for those companies or organizations in crisis that really need all the help that they can get to create these social movements around the organizations, helping them to survive and, and develop. Next, we're going to hear from Mariah Besharov. Mariah picks up on the ideas Arrow has introduced and draws on her research into managing competing demands and priorities. This is, of course, front and center for all of us now as we grapple with the competing demands of public health and economic profit and growth. How do we think about reopening the economy? How do we balance that with the considerations of lives and livelihoods? 
Much of Mariah's work has looked at social enterprises and nonprofits, which blend social and financial objectives. This feels particularly instructive today as we deal with the dual public health and economic crises. Here, Mariah shares her insights and practices into how leaders and organizations manage competing demands and suggest useful ways of thinking about our current moment, but also the longer term. Mariah Besseroff. So let me just summarize first what some of the challenges as well as the opportunities are in these kinds of competing demand situations. And for many of you, of course, this is not new. This is the reality we live every day in organizations, but it's especially heightened right now in the crisis. The risk here in situations where competing demands are particularly salient is it becomes a tug of war uh, and there are tensions that become destructive rather than constructive between the representatives or the units uh, or even the nations in some cases representing one side or the other of competing demands. And then of course, what can happen is that one side or one perspective comes to dominate. That if we think about the current moment, we emphasize uh, reopening and economic growth, the risk is at the expense of public health considerations. And of course, the other side is, is just as tricky an issue that we might emphasize the health uh, considerations so much so that livelihoods are put at risk, right? And so it's always a delicate balancing and dynamic tension between them. The potential here, right, not just in our current moment, but uh, longer term as well, is that in engaging constructively with these kinds of tensions between competing demands, we actually develop uh, more novel, more creative solutions that move us to a better place than we were before. And so that's the opportunity that I'd like to suggest we all have as leaders uh, in this current moment, uh, as well as in more steady and stable times. And so let me turn now to talk about how we can get there. And what I'm gonna do is suggest three practices uh, that have come out of this line of work that I've been doing with a number of colleagues that we have found to be particularly important as leaders navigate these kinds of competing demand situations. This first practice, what we describe as a both-and mindset, is really about the cognitive frames that leaders adopt. And we use the image here of the yin-yang to capture the need to have a frame and a mindset that is integrative, that brings together both sides of, of competing demands in the service of finding synergies and integrative solutions, while at the same time not losing sight of each of those demands and priorities. Uh, and so still honoring and representing and attending to the distinct perspectives and experiences that each side has to offer. This might be, we might think about this as science and business or science in the economy or medicine in the economy in our current moment can take many other forms and incarnations as well. And so the idea here is that you want to think about both for yourself as a leader and for those uh, with whom you're working, with whom you're developing within your organizations, fostering this kind of uh, appreciation for, for both sides and seeking integrative solutions, not ignoring or necessarily downplaying tensions and conflict but seeing those as opportunities for moving forward, opportunities for dialogue. So this is the first, the first practice. It's again, it's really about the mindset of leaders uh, and those with whom you're working in the organization. But let me now turn to the second practice, uh, which I refer to as building guardrails. And the idea here uh, really is to create a set of roles, structures, metrics, relationships, units in the organization. Sometimes this might be a legal structure 
that can stand for and reinforce each side of competing demands. And in a sense, set a boundary for your organization as to the space in which you're going to operate. That might be thinking about who are you bringing into the organization? Who are you engaging in conversations? If we think about the current moment, this means having discussions with folks who can both uh, bring the public health and science uh, and medicine understanding as well as the deep understanding of uh, the financials of your particular organization. Perhaps it's thinking about uh, the economic situation as a whole and so on, making sure those folks are at the table. In more stable times, it might also mean thinking about having a particular unit attending to one strategic priority and a different for another, right? We talk about that a lot in the innovation space of the value as well as the challenges of having a dedicated innovation unit that's separate from the current business. This can also come up in who you have on your board and thinking about the backgrounds of your board members, thinking about the relationships that you build with outside organizations, a variety of ways in which one can create these guardrails. The important point is that they serve both as a, a voice and a boundary for the organization to make sure that you don't lose sight of either side of, of distinct strategic priorities. I'll tell you a story of one of the organizations I've worked very closely with uh, that helped us develop and refine this notion of guardrails. And in fact, early on in, in this organization, uh, Digital Divide Data, which is an impact uh, outsourcing firm that uh, does IT and related digitization work globally uh, with a social mission of moving uh, young adults out of poverty through employment and training in their IT outsourcing business. Digital Divide Data, as we studied them over time, initially really didn't have any guardrails and they were born in exactly a moment of crisis, right? A recognition that the business might not be viable uh, and the voices of board members started to raise the alarm and prompted the leaders of the organization to think more uh, strategically about putting in place these kinds of structures and practices. And so guardrails might start, for example, with who you uh, have on your leadership team and the varied backgrounds and experiences that uh, come to the table and, and being mindful of uh, bringing in, recruiting, and retaining a diverse set of leaders, uh, of board members, and senior managers who can uh, bring different experiences and expertise to the table. They might then progress to not just the, in, the backgrounds of individual leaders, but to dedicated and formal roles in the organization. So in the case of Digital Divide Data, over time, they, they established actually a dedicated unit focused on the social mission in particular, not just having that be a part of HR, right? Even though it came through their hiring. Uh, so that, so the, the thinking about dedicated roles, one might then also think about, uh, as I mentioned, having a particular unit. Uh, now in some cases, in terms of a lasting strategic priority, that might make sense. Doesn't always make sense in the current moment. Uh, but the idea is that you're continually reinforcing putting into the very structures of the organization, these kinds of representatives or voices that might start with an individual and their expertise, but that then might become more strongly institutionalized in the organization. And in fact, the guardrails might start off relatively narrow and become thicker and more robust over time. What we'll see is that these guardrails create a space within which decision-making can happen. And so this third practice is really about uh, the way in which we want to think about making decisions in the context of competing demands, decisions as dynamic, as provisional. And so even though in times of crisis, it's, it's very tempting to have 
the one sure certain course of action. And we certainly need a long-term sense of where we're going. Uh, we certainly need some certainty uh, and some decisiveness. What we find is that in fact, especially in times of crisis and uncertainty, circumstances change, uh, the resources shift, uh, the context evolves. And so it's actually uh, quite important to be able to revisit and rethink courses of action and lines of decision-making. And so the idea here is that in any moment, one is making a decision moving forward, taking action, but being open to revisiting and shifting as the situation changes. And in fact, the guardrails can be quite useful in this in serving as a voice of an alternative perspective and helping us recognize when our decisions and lines of action may no longer uh, be effective or suited to the situation at hand. And so that's the way in which guardrails can serve as a voice and boundary on decision-making and action. And so let me just pull up now, I've talked about uh, the three practices here, the mindset of leaders as a both-and mindset, the kinds of guardrails, structures uh, that one wants to put in place in an organization, so that's the organizational design piece, and then the action or decision-making piece uh, in, in the sense of dynamically shifting resources and attention. I wanna try to pull together these three ways of thinking about uh, leadership in times of crisis and leadership for navigating competing demands, and maybe link back a little bit to some of Arrow's comments about uh, sense-making and sense-giving in particular, and leave you with sort of an overall image and a way of thinking about what does it mean to lead in times of crisis in the context of competing demands. And what we want to leave you with here is the notion of the role of the leader as creating a space for provisional solutions to emerge. Again, it's very tempting to be uh, very directive, to uh, commit strongly to a single course of action. And what we're suggesting here is that there's uh, quite a lot of value in thinking instead about a collective effort, creating an environment in which solutions emerge and might evolve over time. And there are structures and practices involved in doing that. Uh, there's attention to emotion, there's a certain mindset, uh, but the overall image here is one of uh, navigating through it collectively in a space uh, that allow us to move through the crisis and come up with better solutions and to shift and evolve those over time. We then open the conversation to members of the side community, joining us online from all across the world. Someone began by asking, can the aggressive takeover of companies in this crisis be termed as opportunistic or strategic, or are they perfectly justified? Here's Arrow with his thoughts on that. You know, the simple answer to this question is that, of course, there are all kinds of opportunities and maybe from the corporate or company perspective, it, it's actually a really good idea to think about uh, takeovers or acquisitions or taking advantage of the situation, which may be more, you know, better than otherwise uh, in more normal circumstances. But this, I think, underlying this question, there's also this, this idea that is this, is this okay? Is this, is this, is this right? And of course, this is, a, this is a bigger reflection that we should all be thinking about in terms of not like exploiting others. And I think that we know uh, also from research and practice and uh, acquisitions or takeovers that, that the hostile ones don't tend to succeed that well compared to the ones which have been prepared for a longer time and, and involve both sides. Next, a question on how we equip leaders to have empathy muscles and sense-making skills. Over to Mariah for this one. You know, one thing we can think about is looking at 
the variety of experiences, both professionally and personally, that folks have had. And, and we know from research on people who have cross-cultural backgrounds, that tends to be associated with integrative thinking and integrative complexity is one of the terms that, that we use. And so thinking about either trying to find folks who have that diversity of experience. Again, it's not just about the professional work experience, although that's part of it, but also the diverse personal life experiences can be quite useful. But there are also ways in which one can foster that inside your organization, right? Thinking about sort of some of the most traditional aspects of HR around rotational programs, moving people around different parts of the organization to build an understanding of alternative perspectives. Uh, And so so those are some quite uh, simple and straightforward ways. There are also some uh, really interesting initiatives going on now to develop uh, scales for measuring paradoxical mindset or a paradoxical frame, this sort of both and approach. And so we have some really interesting work coming out there that uh, should be, I think, soon an instrument that folks can use to really assess and measure paradoxical thinking. Uh, I would just add one other piece, which uh, Arrow mentioned in his comments initially, which we've touched on a bit, but I just think really deserves um, a bit more emphasis and attention, which is the emotional side of all this, right? We're sort of talking about the structures and the processes, and this is really difficult work for everyone involved. It's not an easy experience. We have all the anxieties uh, right now of our own health and well-being, our economic situation and that of our organizations and our nations and and the world as a whole. Um, But even in more stable times, dealing with these kinds of competing demands can be very anxiety provoking and raises a lot of emotions. And so part of the role of leadership is creating the space emotionally for this to, to unfold and for people to feel comfortable and safe to engage in diverse points of view. And the notion of psychological safety is one that is quite useful here, as well as thinking about what you're doing for yourself as a leader to have the capacity to entertain and hold, if you will, these diverse perspectives. The panel then took this question. Is it always possible to have a both-and mindset? Or does this just come across as being inauthentic? Is this just leaders delegating away something they don't want to deal with? What we're talking about here is a a very different way of thinking about the role of leaders, right? That the role of leaders is not to take a stand and get people to follow them. That the role of leaders, especially in situations of competing demands and in in our current crisis, is again to facilitate a space, a dialogue for solutions to emerge, right? And so it's not to minimize that there are different perspectives, but to bring those perspectives together in dialogue and conversation and to allow for sometimes uncomfortable moments of disagreement and conflict in the service of helping the collective, whether it's your senior management team, whether it's national leaders, helping the collective come together towards a new way forward, a new solution. So yes, it's possible, it's not easy, and it really requires shifting the way we think about the nature of leadership. And and Linky, this to sense making and sense giving, maybe I'll just first repeat the point that, and this really echoes what Mariah, you were saying, that we used to think of of leadership as as if it was like individual people telling others uh, how to think and act. But that's not the way it works in contemporary organizations. So it really requires this creation of spaces for uh, sense-making, if I use this term, and orchestration of these processes. I apologize for being so abstract and metaphorical, but this is really what I mean by, by space, creating spaces, but it doesn't have to be a physical space. 
of course, there's nothing wrong with physical spaces. We know that people need the spaces, the physical spaces also to have a dialogue and think about different alternatives. But especially what we talked about earlier in terms of, let's say, open strategy, for instance, as an idea of how to organize strategy work would mean that there would be uh, virtual spaces for people to participate in, uh, in terms of strategy work. Finally, in our last question of the Q&A, what can we do together across nationalities when it comes to the COVID crisis? And how can we move from this crisis to the far bigger challenge of climate change? How do leaders do that? You know, absolutely. We can see the challenges and the need for global cooperation and collaboration across nations. And right there, front and center, the difficulty of doing so, right, and the risk of this more sort of destructive, finger-pointing defensiveness that emerges, which is, you know, on the global stage right now, but of course can emerge every day in our interactions within our own work organizations and other settings. Uh, And so I think there, I mean, I spoke primarily about organizational leadership, but I think Absolutely, we want to think about the same kinds of approaches and leadership strategies, this notion of creating a space for dialogue to emerge, right, and thinking about how can we collectively move forward, recognizing that we have different and often very contradictory priorities uh, sometimes, uh, but at the same time, we're all in this together, right? This crisis has only really highlighted the interdependence uh, that we have globally right now, for better, for worse, right? And so the opportunity here is to develop the capacity for moving through this crisis in a way that helps us use those same kinds of mechanisms for longer time horizon questions that maybe we now have the capabilities and the community and the infrastructure, if you will, globally to work towards. And I think the climate crisis absolutely is one of those. And so I think this is a real opportunity. I think, you know, it needs to be actively taken, right, and developed if we're going to, to really move forward on the climate crisis. And I think there too, the challenges of the different positions that uh, nations find themselves in vis-a-vis climate, right, are really tricky, right, and thinking about uh, the global south as in a very different position on some aspects of climate, and that needs to be on the table, right, and part of the discussion, and I think this crisis, in a way, does present the opportunity to develop that capacity for that kind of cross-national dialogue. We'll now leave you with closing comments from Mariah and Arrow. I would like to close by emphasizing the challenges of not just our current moment, but of living in in a world of continually shifting and competing demands and priorities. It's not easy. And I think the way in which we're suggesting we as leaders, uh, as members of organizations work through this is one, again, of allowing solutions and ideas and approaches to emerge without minimizing or ignoring the conflict and tension and uncertainty that we're living in and is a daily feature of our lives. And so I will just close by acknowledging the challenges of of doing that and encouraging us all to think about the opportunities that arise when we allow for that sense of competing demands to be the basis for moving forward and to create the spaces and the conversations and the dialogue to work through this moment together and really to position us uh, to have stronger organizations and a stronger society as a whole. It's not easy, 
I think it feels especially challenging and uncertain right now, but I'd like to encourage us to see this as an opportunity as well to build a stronger and more resilient set of leaders and organizations. The old fashioned models or thinking about leadership in terms of only focusing on the top managers or the political leaders is simply not working. So I'm a big believer, as said, in distributed leadership. And I think this is an important point for all of us in terms of encouraging all of us to be involved, but also it calls for rethinking in terms of uh, how we approach decision-making, including strategy working organizations. Uh, the one thing that I've been trying to emphasize in this uh, discussion is that there's a need for, for a narrative about the future. Now, it's not an easy one to develop under these circumstances, but we need to talk about the future. So it easily happens that we talk about the reasons or the causes of the current crisis. We focus on the present, but the future is equally, if not uh, more important than that. And, you know, this shared narrative doesn't mean that there's only one narrative, but it actually means that it should be at least ideally a collective effort in terms of making sense of the future and the role of leaders uh, would be to you know facilitate this sense making and create spaces for uh, sense making and then orchestrate these processes. My thanks to Professor Mariah Besheroff and Professor Aero Mavara. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. Listen, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about the Leadership in Extraordinary Times series, visit OxfordAnswers.org.